good to be with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> as you've heard already twice, we're excited today because 7.30 this morning we got a text from our son-in-law and he said, okay, we're at the hospital. She's, they're going to take her and she's partially dilated. Mary is and waiting, you know, just we're going to wait for this baby to come. So um, we are... I'm going to be with you and then after the service depart up the road a little bit to catch Susan and then we're going to finish packing the car and head towards Chattanooga. So appreciate your prayers. I was thinking about the fact that <clears throat> um, when we sang that hymn, uh, the glorious, I, I love that hymn. I picked it because this is one of those lift high the cross. It's one of those that I think of so much. Uh, I didn't grow up with that hymn, but I've come to love it um, because of thinking about what it means for the world to hear the gospel. We heard this morning about, in our prayer time, about wars. And to be honest with you, I missed that Israel, that Israel was attacked yesterday. I, I didn't know it. Um, I don't know why. I looked at my phone several times yesterday, but I didn't see the news feed. But this is just a reminder for us that this world that we live in, there's sin and death and destruction and people um, meeting, meeting the end of this life. And we need so much to be a people that takes the gospel, that loves the gospel, that shares the gospel. And this is why we're looking today at the book of Jonah, at this first chapter. I wanted to read for you the first 16 verses of chapter 1 so that we can remind ourselves again of Jonah and his situation of declaring the gospel. So let me read this part of God's word for us this morning, beginning at chapter 1 of Jonah, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship <coughs> into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps, the God. perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account? Has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? 
What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made sea and dry, the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. This is God's Word. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You this morning that as we come, we can be reminded that you are indeed the God of the sea and of the land, but you're the God of more than that. You're the God of everything, the God of the universe, the God that controls every breath we take, the God who is sovereign over every atom, uh, over every molecule. We thank you that you are the King and Lord of all of creation. We pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds and our understanding that we may take in the things that we see here from the text and that the Holy Spirit may be our teacher and lead us into all truth. And so we pray, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You know, one of the um, issues that every Christian faces is the issue of representing Christ to those around us. How do we do that in a good and an effective way? How do we declare our faith? How do we responsibly tell our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, our family members, how do we tell them all about the God that we believe in, about the God that made heaven and earth, about the God that we trust in? The book of Jonah is really all about that. Jonah was a prophet in Israel. Uh, he declared God's word to his nation. Uh, I looked up the areas from 2 Kings. It says that he talked during the reign of Jeroboam II about how God was going to restore the borders from the north up around Hamath, which was up around where Dan is in the northern part of Israel, all the way down to the south where the Dead Sea was. Jonah was the one that made a prophecy about that given to him by God in the time of Jeroboam II. He made that prophecy and it came true. Uh, because you see, a prophet was someone who would declare God's word. Jonah was not just a prophet, but he was a missionary because God had 
we would call him a missionary because God had given him the responsibility of taking a message to a foreign country. So this is where, where we find Jonah this morning. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about, I want us to focus on Jonah, the missionary prophet. I want us to talk about the sailors he encountered on the ship. I want us to see a New Testament parallel and then the power of confession. So first of all, let me look at him as a prophet, as a missionary and a prophet. You know, Bible scholars remind us that Jonah lived in the, that 8th century before Christ. And he gave that prophecy that I mentioned to you during the time of Jeroboam II. So he was a recognized prophet. And in chapter 1, God spoke to him again. And God said to him, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Cry against it because their wickedness has come before me. In other words, their wickedness is right in front of my face. Now, we ask ourselves, okay, what's Jonah supposed to do? Well, he was supposed to leave home. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. He was to preach to them throughout the city, and he was to declare the holy and righteous God and to declare his will, uh, that he had seen their sin and that he was calling them to account for their sin. You know, that's what the holy God does. He, he confronts us, doesn't he, with our sin. That when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we realize, you know, this is something that, that we've done wrong. This is something that we need to make right. In chapter 3, it says Jonah's message was going to be even more simple than that. It was, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, God said he'd, he'd determined to bring judgment on the nation, and he was calling them to deal with their sins and to repent, or the city would be overthrown. Now, you need to think about with me for a moment about what kind of city Nineveh was. Nineveh wasn't just a little small place. Uh, Bible scholars estimate that according to the book and what they find, that the city of Nineveh was perhaps 600,000 people. That's a pretty significant city. When I grew up in Nashville, I think in Nashville, Tennessee, we only had in those days about 300,000. Now there's about 1.8 million. But 600,000 is a healthy city. Uh, 600,000 would probably be about like the, um, about like San Francisco proper would be around 600,000. So it's a pretty big city. It's a powerful city. He called it a great city. It was a city with a real reputation. Now the reputation, though, wasn't a good one. The reputation of the city of Nineveh was one of cruelty. And, um, and darkness. Um, you know, we have cities, we have a city particularly, we have several cities in the United States. We call Las Vegas, we call Las Vegas Sin City. Uh, so there's, there are names that we give to certain cities, aren't we? We say, that's kind of a wicked city, that's a rough place to go to. Assyria, Assyria's capital, Nineveh, was a rough place. They were known for their cruelty. 
In fact, Bible scholars tell us that the Assyrians, when they captured enemy soldiers, they would go after them, they would cut their legs off, they would cut one arm off, and then as the person would dying, they would mock them and shake their hand. There were other situations in which they would decapitate family members and then make their relatives carry the head of the dead person on a pole and march through the city. The Assyrians had a name for cruelty. They were very barbaric in that. Nineveh was a big city. It was a cruel city. Um, they said that when you looked at Nineveh, it was such a large city, it said Jonah, it took Jonah three days to march around the city and to proclaim the gospel, to preach that they needed to repent because God was about to bring judgment on the city. Jonah should have been delighted in a way to go and to preach the message of repentance and God's judgment on Nineveh. He should have been delighted because, you see, Jonah's a very nationalistic person. He's a, he's a very nationalistic man. He, he believed that his, his country, you know, his country was to be the one that was receiving God's blessing, and he believed that the other nations should be receiving the curse of God he was glad when Israel was blessed, and he was sad, you know, when Israel suffered any loss at all. He was excited when he could declare that God was going to extend the borders of, uh, of Israel and that their border to the north and their border, that corridor all the way down to the south of the Dead Sea, was going to be widened. Those, those, some of those areas that had been captured by other powers were going to be given up, and that uh, Israel would be prosperous again. You can imagine, he's a real nationalist. You know, when you, when you see some of the Jewish people who live in the state of Israel, you know, they're very proud of their country. They're very proud of what they've accomplished since 1948. And they're very proud of their army and so forth. Now, that's why yesterday was such a, uh, a horrible disaster for them because it seems that they were caught largely unaware of this great attack. Jonah was delighted to, to declare God's glory. He was delighted to declare the praises of God and the blessings of God on his land. But he wasn't excited about taking the message of uh, judgment to Nineveh. Now that seems strange to us. It seems very strange. Why wouldn't he be pleased to take that message? He's a nationalist. He's excited for his nation to prosper and other nations to fail. Why wouldn't he be excited? Well, we're going to talk about that. What had God said to Israel in his message to the other nations? You know, God had called Israel to be a nation that was not just proud of its own character and that it had a right relationship with God, but God had called Israel to be a nation that shined the light of God's glory to all the other nations. Israel was supposed to be like what we talk about, a city on the hill. Israel was supposed to be a light in the dark world all around it. It was supposed to be the light of the worship of the true God versus the, you know, the pagan gods that were all around them. And the Assyrians had lots of pagan gods. 
the, the, the job that God had given to Israel was to be a light to the world. In Psalm 96 it says, Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. O families of people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Worship the Lord, tremble before Him, all the earth. You see, Israel's job was not to hold in the glory of God, to hold in the message of God, to keep to themselves the truth about the one true God. Israel was supposed to be a light to those dark nations where there was paganism, where there was darkness, where there was sin, where there was depravity, where there was cruelty and, and brutality. Israel was supposed to be a light to those nations so that they would see the glory of the God who made them and know that there was one God, not many gods. There was one God who would bring them into fellowship with himself, not many gods who would do for their, their own good. In Habakkuk, the prophet said, one day the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. Throughout the Old Testament, God said that Israel was to be that light to all the nations. This was Israel's true calling. You see, Israel, like many, had focused in on, himself, in on themselves. They'd become very nationalistic. They'd become very prideful. They'd become like Jonah. They had this idolatry that said, God is our God, and all the other nations, we don't care about them at all. Their, uh, Jonah's idolatry had become his passionate nationalism. He was so nationalistic that he didn't care about taking the gospel to Nineveh, to any of the other surrounding nations. Jonah's message should have been, this is the true God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Repent and turn to him from your sins. Turn to this one, to this true God, and if you do, he will be the one that will forgive you. He will receive you. But is that what Jonah did? No, we look at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3 and it says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish and paid the fare. What we see when we look at how he responded was, instead of listening to God, instead of going and immediately leaving, you remember when God told Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac. I want you to go three days journey. I want you to take wood with you. I want you to take a preparation to make a fire. And I want you to offer a sacrifice to me. I want you to offer your son on that sacrifice, that mountain I'll show you. Abraham got all his stuff together. He got up the next morning. He took off and he went to do it. What does Jonah do? Jonah gets up. He runs the other way. He tries to avoid God. He tries to ignore Him. He rebels against God. And he refuses to seek the salvation or call another people to repentance. Jonah didn't want to receive this message and take it to the enemies. He didn't want them to have the hope of God's mercy. He didn't want the Assyrians to repent. He wanted them to be annihilated. Now what about the sailors on the boat? Jonah gets on that boat and, you know, he, 
He wants to deny the grace and mercy of God to his enemies. So he jumps on this ship. He picks one going not the way that he should have gone, but he picks a ship going the other way. If we had a map up here, we could say this would be where Jonah was in Israel. Nineveh would have been over here as the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Tarshish was over here. Tarshish was in Spain. It was a fishing village in Spain. If, if Jonah had left here, he could have gone 500 miles to Nineveh and been done. Instead, he goes 5,000 miles to the other way. He gets in a ship going 5,000 miles away to go to Spain, to a tiny fishing village on the far corners of the earth, as far as he was considered. Now, can, can you see it? And so when he gets on board the ship, you know, he buys his ticket. No telling how much it cost, but he was willing to pay it. No telling. 5,000-mile journey, he's going to go just so he can get away from doing what God told him. And he gets on the ship. He goes down to his bunk in the hold of the ship, and he gets down there, and he just covers himself up on his bunk or his hammock, and he goes to sleep. He's going to avoid God at all costs. He's not even going to stand on deck. He's going to hide underneath uh, as far down as he can to get away from God. But God wasn't through with him, was he? And he learned you can't run from God. Verse 4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind when the ship got on the sea. The Lord hurled a great wind. Now the word translated hurled there was the word that described a person throwing a javelin. Now you know what effort it takes when they're in the Olympics, when you see these guys, when you see somebody throwing a javelin. I mean, they take that javelin, they, they run back this way and they get it as far back as they can. Then they run up to the line where they can stop and then they just fling it with all of their energy. They throw that javelin far away. That's what it says, that's the word that says when God threw a storm and a wind against that ship that Jonah was in, that's what he did. He threw it that hard at him. He threw the wind so that it raged against the boat that Jonah was in. Now, how did the sailors react? Well, the sailors reacted, first of all, by saying, we're all going to die. They were afraid. So they started emptying the ship. They start throwing everything over the side because everything that was in there was weighing it down and they were taking on water. So they're throwing everything over the side. They're, everything that was going to make them money, they threw over the side because they're afraid they're going to die. They, the sailors called on their gods, but their gods didn't answer. Um, you know, they had all kinds of gods. They had a creator god. They had a mother god. They had a goddess of love. They had a god of fate. Uh, I looked them up in the book. I looked them up. They have about eight or ten gods and goddesses just right off the bat. You can find that many. Their gods evidently were unconcerned about them because in Jonah chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 6, it says, So the captain approached him. He says, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your god. Perhaps your god will be concerned about us. In other words... We've called on our gods, 
And our gods don't care. We're looking for somebody who's got a God that's different. Somebody else's God that might care for them. So they say to Jonah, get up and call on your God. Maybe your God cares for us. Maybe he'll save us. Their gods were unconcerned. Their gods were unloving. Maybe their gods were powerless and couldn't help them, they thought. So these sailors come um, to Jonah. And you know, it seems that these sailors are more spiritually aware than Jonah is. They care more about things than he does. Um, they came to Jonah after casting lots and they said, Who are you and what have you done? And when he finally confessed who he was and who he served, they said, how in the world could you have done that? How could you have done that to your God? You know, it's pretty bad when the pagans are rebuking the believers because they're not trusting their God and they're disobeying their God. It's pretty bad when the pagans are condemning us, isn't it? It's a pretty bad point. He finally admitted who he was and what he had done and he told them his situation and they were outraged and frightened. When Jonah said for the only way for them to be saved was to throw him overboard, you know, they desperately try to row to land to save him. So they rebuke him for being wrong. They call his hand on it, but they still care about him enough to try to row him to safety and to get the boat there so that he doesn't have to be thrown into the ocean. They had compassion on Jonah. But finally, when it became evident that nothing else would do, they, before they threw him into the ocean, they prayed to the Lord, the true God, and they said this, Okay, Lord, we're doing what, you've, what you're forcing us to do, but don't cause this man's blood to be on our shoulders. Don't put this man's blood on our account. This is something we're doing in protest. Well, they prayed ahead of time. They prayed from their hearts. They prayed to the true God. And after they threw Jonah over, they feared the God and they made promises to him. They offered sacrifices and they made vows. In other words, they were much more spiritually obedient than Jonah was. These pagans, these people who had been worshiping eight or ten different gods, Jonah, I've said in the title, maybe he was the worst missionary ever. Maybe he was the worst missionary ever. Because all he did was rebel against God and run from God and try to hide from God. He refused to testify about God until he was forced to. And the pagan sailors were more righteous than he was. Well, that's a pretty bad reputation. Now, does this account in the life of Jonah reminds you of anything in the New Testament. Well, if you have your Bibles and want to look with me, look at Matthew 4, verses 35 to uh, 41. Matthew 4, 35... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Mark 4, 35 to 41. Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. Let me read it for you. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, Let us go to the other side. 
Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filled up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, think about the similarities in this that we've read from Mark. Both Jesus and Jonah were surprisingly asleep in the midst of a storm. In each case, uh, others in the boat came to the sleeper and said, cry out to him, to your God, that we are perishing. Cry out to him that they are perishing. And they each called upon somebody, on the sleeper to do something. In Mark chapter 4 of Jonah, uh, uh, in Mark chapter 4 and Jonah, there's this miraculous intervention by God. And after the deliverances, both sailors and the disciples are described as more terrified than they were during the storm. So there's quite a few similarities between this occasion in Mark 4 and the book of Jonah. And you, some Bible scholars are saying, we wonder if Mark recorded this thinking about Jonah. But there's a difference. The difference is that Jesus came to show us the sacrificial love of God. He did it willingly. He came freely to bring us the message of eternal life. He came freely to save us from more than drowning. He came freely to save us from the storms of death and hell. Jesus is the one who came to do everything for us because he delighted to do the will of the Father, not doing it reluctantly. In Romans 5 verse 8, remember it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now this leads me to ask you about the power of confession. What if Jonah had confessed while he was on that boat? What if he'd confessed to the sailors and repented of his sin of rebellion against God? What if he had declared the glory of the one true God to the people on the ship? What if he had told them about the Messiah? What if he had said that, that they could repent of their sins and believe and trust in him and receive the blessing of Abraham, which would be that one of, the blessing, one of the descendants of Abraham would come and be the Savior who was a blessing to the whole world. And what should we tell people? What should we tell people around us? What should we tell the people who are our neighbors, our friends, our family, our co-workers? We must tell them that there is a Savior who came willingly for us. We must tell them that there was one that came freely to die in our place to take our place on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. We should tell them that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save the world because God loved us from the very beginning and chose to save us. 
and that there is, that God is no respecter of persons, that he, his gospel is good news for all the nations. You know, I love it that, you know, that the gospel is called good news, not good advice. It's not good advice for us to follow and if we follow the advice to be saved, but it's good news about a work that's already been done for us. It's been done for us on the cross when Christ died in our place and purchased our redemption by His own blood, by His own death. His gospel is good news for all the nations. In Titus 2, 11, and 11 through 14, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all mankind. Let me read a little bit more of that to you from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. God's plan of salvation includes the salvation of people from every tribe, tongue, people group, and nation. When you go and look in the, in the back of uh, Revelation and you see all those people around the throne and we hear there's going to be people from every group, every tribe, every nation. God does not favor Americans over Russians. We all need the gospel or the Chinese over the Japanese. The promise of Abraham is to you, from you to all nations that the world would be blessed. He says, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. That's the promise. You know, the gospel's got to go everywhere. It can't be just to the people we like. It can't be just to the people that we have trade agreements with. It's got to be people we don't like. It's got to be people where the glory of the gospel is going forth. You know, there were years ago, I had in our church, I had Kennedy Smart come and preach. Some of you will re remember the name Kennedy Smart because he was one of the first leaders in both Mission to the World and Mission to North America that talked to always about evangelism, missions, and world outreach. And Kennedy said, you know, one of the interesting things about the Iran-Iraq war was that there were a bunch of believers in, I think it was in Iran, and the Iraqis, when they were forced out of their country, had to flee over into Iran, into refugee camps. And when the, maybe it was the Iraq, uh, when Russia was, was attacking them. So I got my war wrong, but it was Iraq and Russia. Some of those refugees from Iraq went over into Iran, and there were believers in Iran. And those believers in Iran were leading those Iraqis to Christ. You see... The gospel is for everyone. The gospel doesn't, doesn't pay any attention to borders. The gospel doesn't pay any attention to trade agreements. The gospel doesn't pay any attention to this because the gospel is needed in North Korea. 
It's needed in China. It's needed in India. It's needed in the continent of Africa. In Western Europe. Western Europe is so dead spiritually, they, you know, the churches have four people in them. You know, there's nobody that comes. The culture is secular. We look around and we've got to remember that the gospel is for every nation because God has sent His Son Jesus so that Jesus would be a light to all the nations, so that Jesus would be the light shining like the light on the hill. He's going to be shining in the darkness of the world all around us so that there can be light and life and forgiveness of sin and cleansing from all unrighteousness. We know from reading the end of the book of Jonah that God withheld His judgment on Nineveh, but God didn't withhold His judgment against sin. He did this incredible thing. He let the judgment fall on His only Son, Jesus, so that it wouldn't fall on us. God's kindness has appeared to us. The loving God who is our Savior has saved us, and He's shown us His mercy. He's saved us by riches richly and lavishly pouring His Holy Spirit upon us in regeneration and renewing us in giving us life and the hope of eternal life. Is this what you're confessing about God to your friends and neighbors and relatives and co-workers that He that has the Son has life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light who has come in the darkness to shed the light of the gospel of the glory of your face in the, in the face of this dark and needy world. We pray, Father, that your message of truth and life will go out through us into all kinds of people around us, that whether we're sitting at the dinner table or whether we're sitting... Uh, in line at the de Department of Motor Vehicles, that, Father, whatever we're doing, that we would be a light to other people, a light that shines, a gospel light. We pray for this, for your work of mercy and grace to be in us and in all the nations around us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.